0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary associate and your host, Rosie Kelliger.
1: Hello and welcome to the Travcast, which is our opportunity to talk to writers, theatre makers and artists about their process, about how they work. And today I'm really pleased to be joined via Skype by Sue MacLean. Sue is a Brighton-based theatre maker, writer and performer with, uh, I think it's fair to say, an extraordinarily diverse practice. Earlier this year she was commissioned by the Royal Court to write The Holding Place, which is a companion piece to Carol Churchill's Escaped Alone. She's also worked extensively with dance artists including Janine Fletcher, Antonia Grove and Jonathan Burrows and her show Can I Start Again Please which explores trauma and language won a total theatre award for innovation, experimentation and playing with form at the 2015 Edinburgh Fringe and that show will be coming to the Traverse at the end of September. Uh, Sue thank you so much for making time to speak to us today.
0: It's a pleasure.
1: Um, So I've, I've kind of touched on it Already, uh, by talking about just the, the sheer range of, of different approaches to work that, yeah. that you have. Um, but what I'm really interested to kind of get under the skin of a bit is your relationship to language. I'm thinking about the the range of theatrical languages that you use, verbal and visual and choreographical, BSL, uh, that's British Sign Language for, for those who don't know. And I'd love you to tell us a bit about where this approach has come from and how you work.
0: Well, um, I think first that whenever I'm making a piece of work, I tend to explore the topic or the thing that has initially compelled me to investigate. And then I allow the form of the work to reveal itself around that, which I think is why all of my pieces are quite different in their form. Having said that, for the last 20 years I've been working um, in tandem with my practice as a theatre maker and writer as a British Sign Language English interpreter. And I went through quite an extensive training um, of two years to qualify as an interpreter. And when you're working between two languages, Whatever those languages are, then the heightened understanding or acute um, sort of acute listening that is necessary to understand what somebody is trying to say has put me in a very uh, particular place in terms of how I listen and how I produce my own um, utterances as a as a person, but also how that influences what am I really trying to say when I write this sentence? Or what am I really trying to say? What is the overall intention that I am trying to be true to? And I think, so that's a huge influence. And I then um, undertook an MA in, um, the topic was life history and life writing. And that explored over a two-year period lots of different forms of autobiographical, oral history, um, interviews, and it was a sort of theoretical look at how do people construct their own life stories or how are life stories constructed? Um, how is history represented? What is the lens? What does the what does memory do to how we talk about incidences, and through that MA, you dis- I discovered that what somebody might say about a topic five years ago, they will talk about it completely differently in five years time, and that context in both language and memory is a hu- hugely important um, imp- influence on how construct themselves and therefore construct their language. And that really probably is the one lens that stays true in all of my pieces, whether that's a dance piece or a written piece, whether I'm directing somebody else or making my own work, that I'm very interested in the essence of what are the influences at this particular time
1: that is making
0: this construction happen.
1: I, I was struck by something you said there about, um, obviously being, being led by the idea and, and allowing the form to come from that and to, to attempt to distill what it is that you want to mm-hmm. say. But it, it struck me in what you were saying that actually I wonder if there's also a sense of distilling who you're saying it to, um, and, and what your relationship to the audience might be, uh, whether that's you as writer or theatre maker or choreographer or you as okay. performer.
0: I think, I've, one, I think distill is a is a very good word for me. Um, I'm very drawn by work, that word, distillation or reduction. Um, and I think in terms of my relationship to my audience, I, the thing that I try and establish is that the performance space is a compassionate space and is a space where conversation is occurring between the performance and the audience. And I am interested in finding a way to make audiences metaphorically lean forward in their seats to join the performance rather than having the performance sort of thrown at them or very much either realistically through a you know construction of a fourth wall or through the fact that a piece of work is so full of its own presumptions and cultural assumptions that it isn't accessible to an audience. And I think that, again, going back to my interpreting work, that this idea of cultural mediation and of what do we assume are everybody's... um, that, that I can't assume that my audience and I at the beginning of a piece, are standing in the same field. I think that we're standing in vastly different ones and that that's what's exciting and that the job is to bring us to to a shared space by the end of the work.
1: The job of the, of the show, if you like, then. Yes. Yes. I suppose in the face of the, the huge range of different types of work being made at the moment, I think that there's something quite revolutionary about about that type of um, inclusivity in your practice. And it, it seems to me that actually that word inclusivity leads quite a lot of what you do.
0: Yes, it really does. Inclusivity and I, I believe that you can be um, political regardless um, and that, uh, yes, that, that to be, to do no harm, um, doesn't mean that you don't have challenge. There's a.
1: It doesn't take away the the option to provoke.
0: Exactly. There's a. I I have a. Um, I would describe myself as a as a practicing Buddhist, and that that, underpins quite a lot of my philosophical moral approach to the world, which in turn affects my theatre-making and writing, and there's a wonderful expression in Buddhism called wrathful compassion, and wrathful compassion, would an example of that would be if a young child is about to put their hand in the fire, there isn't any point in trying to say, please don't do that, you need maybe to give them a bit of a yank, which might be a bit of a jolt for them, and uh, it might not be entirely... Um a pleasant experience, but there's a, there's a necessity to that action to ensure that that child isn't hurt. I'm not sure whether or not that's a very good good example, but um I think that for me, trying to find a politic in my life and also in my work that is wrathfully compassionate to myself and to my audience. Um yeah, it's really important to me. It's important to me that people are not, you know, thinking about can I start again, please, because it's about trauma. I was really, one of the things that I was most proud of about making that work is that nobody who was collaborating with me on it or who was, you know, Nadia, who's performing in it with me, I, could, I can honestly say that nobody was harmed in the making of that work and that nobody has been harmed by watching that work. Um, and that, nevertheless, it is a very challenging, rigorous um, piece of work that moves people and takes them to a different place and a
1: different perspective by the end of and we're very much excited to, to have it here at the Traverse with us uh, at the end of this month. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit more about, about the genesis of that show and, and your process in making it.
0: So I started, I mean, this is the fascinating thing, I think, about art, is that um, I thought I had an evening once in my house and I was looking in the mirror and I thought, my teeth, my teeth—they're getting old. <laughs> and I had a sort of feeling of I think blood. we all
1: have those moments. <laughs> yeah.
0: So when you just sort of catch a certain part of yourself that maybe you haven't been paying attention to, and you sort of think, "Oh, hello." Um, so I had that about my teeth, and I started to think about from that um, about the mouth as a as a place that holds our history but that that history is often hidden and that dentists might know that I used to be a smoker even though that's not declared so on anyway so I thought I was going to make a piece about um, the mouth as a container of history and as another source of a life story or something like that so I started with that and I knew that I wanted to make a piece of work that had the parallel languages of British Sign Language and English, and I knew that I was starting to move towards a more, what I would describe as, you know, as a sort of, the influence of choreography in my work as a writer. Anyway, so I noodled around in that for about six months. And what became apparent was that it wasn't a show about my teeth. That the the title Can I Start Again Please, which had occurred when thinking about have I looked after my teeth properly and what would I do if you know, if there was a better system of where it wasn't so expensive and all those things. Could I start again please? Anyway, that title stayed with me, but it gradually became clear that i wanted to write a piece about my own experiences as a child of being abused within my family and i really sort of balked at that <laughs> balked at that because i i don't i didn't want to make a a sort of misery memoir i didn't want to do a sort of poor me. Um, there's been lots of autobiographical writing now about people's childhood experiences and it was at the time that you, Tree and all of those stories were starting to come through. And so I was really challenged by the fact that I seemed to be going to this place, but how would I approach it? And then through sort of staying with it, I and doing lots of reading and thinking about trauma and thinking about language that it became apparent that what I was interested in is how, what are the capacities of language to express a traumatic experience and to express a traumatic experience so there is some feeling of resolution or relief after the expression has happened. So I think a lot of us who have been survivors of whatever, trauma. You often throw, I threw lots of words at it, having gone to therapy for a long time. And yet there were only very few moments in that journalistic writing about the experience or therapeutic talking or supportive talking with friends that I thought, I've really, I've got to what I want to say about this subject. I feel that I've that I'm done with it. Um, And so that was then the trajectory that I went down with looking at the relationship between language and trauma, cognition. um, And I started to look at the philosophical writings of Wittgenstein and discovered that he had said lots of really great things, and lots of very obscure things, but one of his most famous, or one of the sayings that he's most known for is, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. And that's open to huge interpretations but basically sort of sums up what the piece is about. If you can't say it, does that mean you shouldn't try? If you don't know how to say it, should you keep your mouth shut. Um, Those are sort of more vernacular interpretations of Wittgenstein's, more poetically put, whereof one cannot speak, thereof must be silent. But so I started to read his work and he became then a third character, absent, but a third character in the work. Um, And there was something about being able to rinse my very personal experience through the writings of Wittgenstein, putting them through the rinse of language processing and cognition, semiotics, that uh, uh, allowed me to arrive at a place where I felt very true, I feel very represented in the work, but I don't. Feel that I stayed in a place of sort of helpless I me pure autobiography.
1: And what relationship um, were you hoping your audiences would have to that that understanding of language um, mm. and and ultimately to the work itself?
0: Well, it was interesting because. Because I was making the piece in parallel, I I sort of set the task that it would work in British Sign Language and English with with an equivalence of experience for BSL-using audience and a non-BSL-using audience. So there was already a huge layer of thought that needed to happen about how to ensure that that was the case, and that the British Sign Language wasn't just being a sort of poor cousin to the main work, um, and that through that um, through that decision and being staying true to that decision um, meant that it influenced a huge amount of the form of the piece and that the fact of these two languages clashing and colliding sometimes working in harmony together um, helps represent the the themes of the work. And so I, I wanted to make sure that everyone in the audience came away with the same experience, some of which is confusion. Having to work really hard to follow what it is that we're saying, a sort of patience that that and yes, a sort of wanting to be with us um, in the room while we try and get to the to to what we want to say. Um, I wanted audiences to be moved and. Obviously, I wanted them to not be able to sit back from what was being talked about, but that the the na- So there's lots of questions in the piece that that happen towards the audience, and the feeling of uncertainty that occurs sometimes for audiences about are we supposed to answer these questions? what is my relationship to that, to the answer to that question helps I hope create the same feelings that we might have when we are faced with somebody's trauma how do I approach this how do I find a way in to be a friend for this person how do I become a an advocate and by that I don't mean that you then you know I don't expect my audience to then go out and start being any different to how they are but that maybe they have without it sounding too crass that they have spent a, they've walked in my shoes and other survivors shoes in a profound enough way that gives them something to continue to contemplate on after leaving the theatre.
1: Sue, thank you so much for sharing that insight into your practice and into how you take care of your audiences. Uh, It's fascinating to hear an artist talk about their audience almost as if they were uh, another collaborator in the rehearsal room there.
0: Well, they absolutely are. For me, that's a really lovely way of putting it. Thank you. Um, And thank you for joining us.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.